Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Bob Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations. So, here's a bit about what they've done and how I know them. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. It attempts to answer the question, how do you know? Few people accept the challenge in that question, and fewer still apply it to non-sectarian spirituality. So Tobin Hart's in rare company, yet it gets rarer still, for Tobin inquires into the epistemology of spirituality for education. To be clear, Tobin elucidates the way we can know spirituality and how we can bring it forth in education. Tobin serves as professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia. He is co-founder of the Child Spirit Institute, a nonprofit educational and research hub exploring and nurturing the spirituality of children and adults. Find them at childspirit.net. His work explores human consciousness, especially at the nexus of psychology, spirituality, and education. His recent books include The Four Virtues, The Integrative Mind, Transforming Education for a World on Fire, From Information to Transformation, Education for the Evolution of Consciousness, Transpersonal Knowing, Exploring the Horizons of Consciousness, and a classic in our field, The Secret Spiritual World of Children. So um, I, I would like to just start off specifically with the question of spirituality and not really, you know, the, it's not easy to define. Nobody really, you can't define it. It's, that's its nature in my understanding. But you've really taken this profoundly uh, into our holistic approach. And just anything you could tell us about that, I would really appreciate. Hmm. It's so tricky, isn't it? I'm, I mean, in a secular, largely secular world to be able to talk about that. I think the, the thing, though, that that is really common and that folks can pretty easily uh, get is that, you know, we have both moments and feelings and also values, you know, that are deeply meaningful, you know, so universally anything that's sort of deeply meaningful or stirring seems to go into that category of, Okay, it tips the scales, it breaks the threshold that might be spiritual. And particularly when it, uh, you know, there's a spirituality that's really about things like authenticity and individuality and creative expression. And then there's a part of a spirituality that's also about interconnection and uh, receiving and surrender and that kind of thing. So, so for, for humans, I think that we've got this sort of dual, you know, two feet. You know, one of them is in the world of the individual and the other is in this sort of transcendent realm. And how we bring those together is really the challenge, I think, of, uh, you know, what we might call embodied spirituality or uh, finding a way to be uh, most fully human. I even think about, uh, you know, the Greeks, they talked about... um, the liberal arts and the liberal arts were these, uh, you know, these, these various sort of, uh, 
capacities that were to be developed, and they were to be developed for the in order to engender our full humanity. They would talk about humanitas. And the way that they found or articulated spirituality, I think, is that once you became most fully human, that was how the divine was manifest. Whether we think about it as coming into us or us being it somehow, you know, we can go both ways. But so, so then you bring this forward to in your work. And how do you bring it forward? I mean, I understand what you're saying. I live it. I breathe it. It's so meaningful to me. How do you bring it forward, though? Part of my background is as a psychologist. And so um, for me, I see that things are always what I would call psycho-spiritual in terms of development. So very difficult to do something that's, let's say, spiritual, whether it's... uh, you know, transcendent or imminent, uh, without also recognizing what the psychological piece is. And often the question isn't, well, how do you uh, become, you know, whatever, enlightened or whatever, but, but it's instead, what is it that's in darkening you? You know, so what are the things that are sort of in the way of our natural compassion, our natural flow of creativity, our love, our... Um, you know, these kinds of things. So, so that's, that's one of the ways, is not to talk about it as something that's sort of uh, other or out there, but instead that's always bound to um, the psychological, you know. And sometimes that's really practical, you know. Who in your life is toxic, you know. You, know, you, you got to deal with that in order to sort of uh, be able to really flourish in the midst of, of this uh, uh, divine current. And, you know, what parts of us are are afraid, you know, and can we go right into the center of that? So, you know, historically, one of the places where folks have dealt with that is to talk about the soul so that so that the soul is this sort of personalized packet of spirit, right, or this, uh, this, uh, this bridge. <laughs> that's really or, a fun way to talk about it. Well, it's, you know, it's something, right? So, so that, that's another route, you know, to say, okay, well, what is it that really, you know, what's my soul calling for? You know, what is this very down-to-earthness of, of the divine? And, and so, anyway, those are some ways. I, I share this with you very deeply uh, in, in a less uh, formal way, perhaps. I've just, if spirit is all and everything, which is the easiest way I could live with it, then the psyche is the meeting ground, right? And if the psyche is clear, you don't do anything about spirituality. Doing something about spirituality objectifies that. And I think that's a major confusion that people have with it because we live in an objectifying world all too often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. You know, it's a it's a current, not a co- commodity, right? And so uh, how can you really tap that current and, and feel the current inside? And, you know, one of the things, for example, you know, we're at such a turn. We've had such uh, a kind of in psychology, they would talk about it as the cognitive revolution and, you know, the rationality is, is supreme and so forth. And, and one of the things we've lost as we've become more independent, I think, of the earth and able to overcome it in so many ways is our embeddedness and our embodiedness. And that part of what the turn uh, to 
reclaim this is is simply through the body, you know. So something as simple as really attuning our sensitivity to our own inner currents and the things that are going on around us, and you know how we know and listening to those 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 voices inside and listening to those those sort of uh, voices that speak in languages that we don't always acknowledge or honor, you know, a, a good dream, right? Or, a, or just that sort of itchy feeling or that discomfort. And, and so anyway, part of the way back, I think, culturally and educationally is, is back into the body. Even in, you know, front-edge cognitive psychology these days or theories of cognition, they talk about 4E cognition, embedded, embodied, enacted, and uh, uh, extended so that what we know from the spiritual realm in terms of interdependency and interconnection and the vitality and the emergent quality is now even making it into the mainstream of how we talk about this. Well, then that's, is that even cognitive psychology anymore? I mean, haven't they blown open their own boundary? Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and and of course, this is the turn in the in the world these days, right? Where, where we know that we're at the edge of something, you know, it's either a great abyss or or a little bridge made of straw, you know, that we're trying to climb across. <laughs> really, but, a rope bridge but, in the Himalayas. Yeah, exactly. Excuse with me. half of the planks <laughs> off, off really? it, right? So it's very it's very tricky. So, so you know, part of that turn, folks have talked about. It in a lot of different ways, the rising of the divine feminine, for example, uh, uh, and so forth. But but part of it is, uh, I think, about how we know. And this knowing that has, we've been so dependent on has been categorical, uh, Aristotelian, um, rational, uh, linear, uh, time-dependent, uh, past oriented in a lot of ways about history. We think about therapy, for example. It's all about the past, you know, rather than uh, something that's more dynamic, more emergent, more embodied, more uh, probabilistic, you know, as the quantum physicists talk yeah, about. Yeah, we have, right. Certain, yeah. yeah, so it's a re-entry into mystery, but it's an enter, entry into mystery with conscious uh, awareness, to whatever extent we can be, rather than the kind of... Um, uh, you know, immersion that we had before where superstition ruled and, and we couldn't sort of break out of it. That's why we can't go backwards. We have to sort of go f- bring what was the juicy part of, of you know, pre-rationality forward into uh, a kind of post-rationality where it is a, an integrative way of knowing, I would say. I, I want to know about the connection with the students uh, that you have and um, you bring this forth in you know very manageable way. I guess manageable is not a really good term these days. We're, we, you know, we we left off. We're talking about an emergent paradigm. We can see across disciplinary. Uh, I think we can agree on that. How I I haven't had great success bringing that to people who have studied under me. What about you? Specifically, the um, this shift in. Paradigm, the shift in paradigms, such that they can really uh, live it in their practice, especially with children. Yeah. Well, again, I I I I come back to this notion of psycho spiritual, that 
folks will come in with a particular kind of, uh, uh, you know, they'll come in with their own sort of history of both psychologically and spirituality and their beliefs about spirituality and what, what things are. But uh, I, I think that the first thing is for them simply to uh, be honored, you know, where they are. And uh, many times I think folks that are, are, have felt sort of at the margins of the mainstream psych- uh, society uh, feel like aliens. And it's, I, I can't tell you the number of times literally that I've had students say, I f- have felt like an alien and I feel like I've found the mothership. And in coming into our particular program, because I think there certainly are a lot of like-minded folks, but I think they also are given the space to be able to uh, voice what it is that is is their thing. And once you feel heard, <laughs> whether it's an eight-year-old or an 18-year-old or an 80-year-old, once you feel heard, you don't have to fight for your position so much. You suddenly can sort of open to the possibility of dialogue rather than having to build this fortress around your idea and yourself. And so so for me, that 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 came one time when I, my, my first graduate school class in a master's program and my my faculty member, um, my, my professor came, rather I came to his office, sat down, talked about some half-baked idea I had. I sort of got started to stumble over myself. And instead of saying yes, but, he said, well, yes, now let me see if I understand. And he did a great job as a nice Rogerian-trained therapist, you know, to, to, uh, to, to, to hear me. And I said, well, yes, that's, that's what I mean. It, but, it, uh, I, you know, I butted myself. But, uh, but then it was, it's this. And, you know, he drew me out really nicely and honored it. And then what he did was to jump in with me and actually have a dialogue. And it was like a, a cork being taken out of a bottle that this life for me of having had, uh, you know, this, this, these burning and stirring ideas uh, bubbling and bubbling, but not really being able to sort of either get them out or have them received well, he did that. And, and the, the rest of that time just felt like a, a flow to me. So I, I don't know how uh, uh, in, intentional or conscious it is, but it, it is intentional when I unpack the most basic thing of my pedagogy, and that is to really try to hear and meet folks where they are initially. And then they're willing to come on over and say, well, where, where are you? Because you really don't want the student who is just going to interject whatever it is that the idea is in the book or your idea. You want them to be able to dialogue with it. And if you're not, you know, if you're too insecure, you're just going to interject it, just swallow it whole. If you're uh, too defended, you're not going to take anything in. And so, uh, except as it supports your own argument. So, so f- firstly, it is that uh, simply trying to meet folks. It's so simple, right? So. And, and I, just to be clear, you're dealing with undergraduates, graduate students? Uh, graduate, uh, uh, undergrad, master's, and uh, doctoral students. But of course, the same principle is true with um, you know Bowlby and Ainsworth early attachment theory, right? So, so as soon as you're you're really bonded, you know when you really are uh, feel felt 
for example, all those psychological and neurological kinds of things that help us feel grounded come to the fore. As soon as you feel heard, seen, felt, this kind of thing, then you can be in the room. So. And then are they in education or psychology or both? Uh, some of both. Uh, the students I work with are housed in a psychology department, although sometimes we get folks from across campus, and, and it isn't unusual for my folks to go on and uh, do other work or become faculty members in psychology or to do work and become teachers in education or to go into business, that kind of thing. So. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise person, a wise fool, or a trickster animal. They can be humorous and always have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story. Today, I'm going to tell two teaching stories. There are teaching stories that transcend culture that can be found in almost every culture in which teaching stories are an oral tradition. And even though these two stories may seem, you might question, how do they go together? I invite you to listen to each of them and then to think about how they may apply to education. The first story is called The Eagle. Once a farmer found an abandoned eagle's nest and in it was an egg still warm. He took the egg back to his farm and laid it in the nest of one of his hens. The egg hatched and the baby eagle grew up along with the other chickens. It pecked about the farmyard, scrabbling for grain. It spent its life within the yard and rarely looked up. When it was very old, one day it lifted up its head and saw above it a wonderful sight an eagle soaring high above it in the sky. Looking at it, the old creature sighed and said to itself, if only I'd been born an eagle. And the second story is called Under the Lamp. One evening, the wise fool was walking along and he saw his friend under a street lamp down on his hands and knees, searching. And he went up to his friend and he said, what are you looking for? And the friend said, I lost my key. And so the wise fool said, well, would you like some help trying to find it? Sure, said the friend. And so the wise fool got down on his hands and knees and searched and searched with his friend. And there was no key. And the wise fool said, we can't find the key. Are you sure that you lost it here? And his friend said, oh, no, I lost it up in that dark alley. Well, why are we looking for it here? Said the wise fool. Well, this is where the street light is. Can you find meanings in this story about education? If so, send your insights to ba at lovemoreconsulting.com. A three-person panel will select the most relevant stories, and they will be read at the end of a subsequent podcast. Again, that's B-A at L-U-V-M-O-U-R-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G dot com. I look forward to your insights and to learning from you. Those insights selected will receive a copy of the award-winning book so valuable for parents and educators. Grow Together. 
Parenting as a Path to Well-Being, Wisdom, and Joy by Dr. Josette Lovemore. Yes, we have the same last name, and we are married, and we have been working together in holistic education for more than 30 years. But that's not the reason I offer this book. Check out her many accolades and the book reviews on our website, lovemoreconsulting.com. You're here at a holistic education conference. How does that happen for you? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. I guess my my uh, my interest, I was trained to... Re- yeah, so... Uh, that's a good question. I guess my my uh, my interest. I was trained originally as a therapist, and so I'm really interested. But you know, therapy has wonderful uses and wonderful limits. And you know, one of the measures of the limits for me is whenever anyone asks me for a recommendation for a therapist in my town, it's very difficult for me to come up with folks that I really deeply trust. And so therapy is very tricky, a uh, business. And education is equally uh, tricky, I think. So I'm, I'm interested in w- especially where education can be therapeutic and where therapy can be educational. And so it's that nexus of therapy and education that I'm really, really uh, intrigued with. And that's part of, I think, what holistic education does. It really embraces the whole, whole person and... Uh, uh, I, I, I think that includes some of those things that we deal with in therapy without it having to be uh, therapy in many ways. So, and so in other words, uh, that, that's like what Rogers said when he said that teachers in the futures will actually be counselors. Uh, he didn't use the term therapist, but will actually be counselors to students. Absolutely. And of course, this trend towards things like social-emotional learning, which has really gotten lots of traction and North America and elsewhere, I think, uh, contemplative education or contemplative teaching and learning and, of course, all the things that have been around holistic ed, humanistic ed, those kinds of things, those are all about, you know, allowing the full human being in the room and you can't do that without being a, a counselor of sorts, right? And again, I, I do think it comes back to really um, uh, trying to be trying to see who this person is so that you can then mirror, mirror them so that they can see and honor who they are in many ways. Yeah, that's been the challenge I've had with educators because even today, almost all of them come through a teacher training program that doesn't do the greatness that you're referring to here. And so there's hearing them and then there's the unlearning and then there's the newness of what might occur and it's overwhelming. I mean, even in the holistic education world, um, we have a hard time with getting really good teachers. By good, I don't mean good people. They're all good people, but good in the Absolutely. sense that well, of course, it's they two, are going to take two the huge uh, pieces to this, at least, right? One really of them no is. Absolutely. Well, of course, it's two or two huge uh, pieces to this, at least, right? One of them is. You know, to what extent do we do our own work? You know, to what extent do we know ourselves and and really hear ourselves deeply and find our own voice and our calling and so forth? And of course, anybody who's going into teaching is it, it, this is almost anybody. This is a calling in some way. The trouble is um, that there often isn't enough space for them to really do 
a nice archaeology of their own psyche, right? Uh, and then uh, this development of, of uh, real presence, you know, is, is so, uh, so critical. I think it was Jung who said, uh, you know, we teach mostly who we are. And so, you know, it's your, your being in the room, your beingness in the room that really is, is the primary factor. It doesn't matter what the curriculum is. It doesn't matter what else is going on. It's who you are in the room. And, and so that's so preeminent and, of course, so often gets assumed by demands of curriculum and demands of... Oh, and, and parents fear and teachers fear and... I, I've had, I know in our school, kids have come up and said, you're not like any other principal I ever met. I said, it's because I'm not a principal. I'm just here with you. And the teachers as well, they expected me to come in with my little uh, pad and mark them. Did they do this right? Did they do that right? And I said, you, I said, you know whether you're doing it right. You don't need me to tell you that. But it's very hard. And it's really, it's really hard for them. Well, and that's the other big issue, right, is that the zeitgeist, the, the, the climate, the society and the culture are so uh, fixed in a particular way of being that it's so, uh, you know, it, it's like, a, you know, trying to leave the gravitational pull of the sun. You can't do it without incredible support and incredible in, in, in integrity and incredible uh, sort of handholds, too. So do you feel that the um, students that you've dealt with, that they would be able to do this? Well, I, you know, I think it varies from person to person, right? Uh, uh, and it's developmental. And I think that uh, I, I see a lot of our folks really being able to um, uh, own their calling. And one of the things, of course, that you're supposed to develop in schooling at every level is their ability to articulate what is their, uh, what's going on on the inside. So for them to be able to do this in writing or do this in practice or do this in speaking is really, really an important uh, element. One of the ways I think about it, I, I guess, is that, um, you know, what are the capacities needed for folks to be able to uh, live in this world and be a, a real change agent, a spiritual change agent? Well, wouldn't that cycle back to what you were saying earlier about the blocks or the endarkment? Was that your cool term? <laughs> wouldn't that cycle right back there? That yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, and, and you know, I, I, for me, I, I've actually tried to, we don't have to get into it, but I've tried to uh, uh, think, well, what are those capacities and how might they be uh, pieces that are... Um, even operationalized in some way. I, 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 I think about that all the time as well. That's, it's, I don't know. I ask everybody. It's my one question. Nobody really knows. It's very hard to understand that. I, I, to me, in a, I guess one of the things I've come up with is, can you participate in your own suffering? Or do you objectify it? Did somebody do it to you? Now, that's not to say that we all haven't been hurt in different ways by all sorts of authoritarian uh, people and institutions, because we certainly have been impacted by that. But do we take responsibility? Okay, that happened to me. I'm in that right now. Who do I have to be in that? Because at least just inside me, uh, Tobin, it's opened me to the suffering of all. 
and it's something I live with. And uh, it, it's just, it's just well that we've been impacted. There's this natural greatness, this spirituality, and we have been impacted. Okay, let's let's take it on, like we take on going to the moon. Let's just take it on. Absolutely. That's what that's for me yeah. anyway. No, absolutely. I I, I think. You know, in its most kind of distilled form for me, I think, gee, all of the spiritual traditions talk about two things for sure. And one is love or described as compassion. And the other is wisdom. And those are sort of the bookends. Uh, To those, I like to think practically about two others. And those are presence and uh, creation or creativity. And so for part of what you're describing the capacity to be present to our suffering, present to another suffering, and to be able to have compassion for, you know, ourself in that way is part of the kind of uh, ground out of which uh, uh, this incredible uh, drive we, we have to be able to understand somebody else's and then to do something about it in the world, you know. And, and so, so those, those things, love and wisdom, presence and creation or creativity are, are for me just, you know, four uh, points on the compass, you know, uh, uh, as they, we might find in indigenous traditions, right? Um, I, I've done, uh, thank you for that, and I, I've done a lot of, internal and investigation into the nature of creativity. And one of the things I've noticed uh, is that people often confuse talent with creativity. And of course, if your talent somehow meets the current uh, cultural uh, expectations, then there's a reward for that, and then we get hooked into the reward, and we confuse talent with creativity. Well, for, so I have more to ask about that, but do, what do, you, do you agree with that? Is that something that you see as well? Oh, sure, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So some wonderful things written about it, of course, over the years. Uh, I think we can take it in a bunch of different ways. So at a, at a, a, a spiritual sense, when we actually look at folks' lived experience of creative inspiration or breakthrough, the aha moments, which often are the seed then out of which the great work comes. You know, folks would translate that vision into something that they would need to revise and revise and revise, right? Um, that the, the phenomenology of that, the lived experience, is often, oh my gosh, it came to me. You know, I had that breakthrough, right? And uh, very interesting, for example, neurophenomenologically, when folks have uh, an aha experience, they're often in this, uh, what's called theta band wave. So they're at somewhere between four and eight hertz uh, cycles per second in the brain. And so it's fascinating to see, you know, something like, uh, you know, our, our neural substrate of when creativity sort of, or at least insight comes to us. And that opens the possibility of saying, well, boy, we can induce that to some extent, or at least invite it. In that sense, we, can, we can't will creativity ever, but we can woo it, and things like contemplative practice and so forth actually lead us into alpha state that can lead us into this threshold of uh, theta. And so, so that's one thing, you know, where, where does the vision of the burning bush come from, you know? And, uh, and, and often, 
It comes from uh, that opening. It can also come from our deep suffering. And then the challenge is to say, how do you bring that into form? You know, and that then is something else. That's a uh, that's an issue of sometimes um, developing capacities, developing voice, developing um, uh, overcoming the fear of of what this is going to look like and being judged. And so, so I don't think of creativity as uh, a pure product. I think of it as this sort of activity. You know, how, can you live a creative life? Can you think creatively? Although we only have time for one more the question. Habitual patterns um, that we have now, but it know, has still we, to do with creativity. Uh, so, and you, you know, for, yeah. although we only have time for one more question, um, but it has still to do with creativity. And for me, if I tried, you know, we talk about living presence, and then I. In that, I admit that I try to listen to what's needed. Um, and when I do that, it seems that creativity, uh, maybe as you say, maybe it's just the expression of the creativity. I, I'm not really sure because I'm just describing a process. But that kind of surrender to what's needed. And um, oftentimes it's led me to very unusual <laughs> activities, which I heretofore wouldn't have suspected. So I, I just wanted to share, what do you think of that? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that, um, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, <laughs> we're, we're just trying to tap a current. And the current, we're already in it, you know. And uh, Huxley talks, talked about the brain and the mind as a reducing valve, not a generator of consciousness, but a reducing valve. And so the challenge is, in many ways, what are the ways in which we can uh, sort of crack open that aperture of consciousness so that we can be attuned to our own depths, we can be attuned to those in the world, we can be attuned to those in the classroom. And you know the, that magic sometimes when you get, everybody gets in that current, you know, or you get in the current and you you do just as you said, Father, and that is you speak what's needed and you didn't, didn't even know where that came from and the person says it's funny you should say that and then often there's a synchronicity involved right so we're just i i, I don't know i think uh i think the Taoists had a big piece of this understood right and we're just trying to sort of find our way back to that current and uh, it runs through us i i like good um john muir says yeah you know the the river shines not on or rather the sun shines not on us but in us, the river runs not past us, but through us. And that's the place that we're looking for. Meetings with Remarkable Educators is a production of Lovemore Consulting 2 LLC. Copyright Ba and Josette Lovemore, 2018. Our sound engineer, Dimitri Young. Our webmaster, Nathan Young. And our all-important media maven, Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at lovemoreconsulting.com slash podcasts. Bye and Josette Lovemore would also like to thank Self-Design Graduate Institute. We teach there, and at Self-Design, we nurture each learner's ability to explore inner and outer worlds and discover his or her own deep understanding and vision. Go to the SDGI website and see for yourself. That's www.selfdesigninstitute.org. This is Ba Lovemore. 
reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere. See you next time.